Uh, well, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm in a little bit of a, uh, what, what's the phrase for boast, like humble boast? What does that mean? Humble brag. brag. Humble brag. What's humble that brag. mean? What's that mean? That's that a uh, way to say something great about yourself, but pretend like you're just kind of saying it off, you know, it's no big deal. Ah, uh, well, this is not exactly a humble brag, but it is a, uh, it is a, uh, uh, see, you get a, a preface is what, I, I forget the difference between a, f- I know what a forward is. Forward spelled F-O-R-E-W-O-R-D is when someone other than the author writes it. And an introduction, yep. I think, goes over what's in this the book. And a preface, not sure how that fits in there, but I think it goes title page, uh, copyright, table of contents, forward, F-O-R-E-W-R-D, Maybe a W-A-R-D, I don't know. And then you got a preface, and then you got an introduction. Um, and then if you're, if you're like one of those goddamn O'Reilly books, you've got like how to use this book. What, let, let, let me just take a little break here. What is y'all's position <laughs> on the let me tell you what you're about to read sections in books? Next, Love next. It. I mean, I, I like the uh, too long T- TLDR. I, I don't know if that's exactly the same. I love the TLDR, right? That's like oh, yeah. the awesome. Well, no, but awesome. I, I mean the one. So in O'Reilly books um, and many, many other books, I forget which book I was reading. Or, oh, I was re- reading some, um, I don't know, one of these books where we got a bunch of CIOs together to talk about finance. And, you know, nine-tenths of the book is telling you what they're about to tell you in the last tenth, I guess. Uh, but it had one of those chapters where it's like, in chapter one, we're going to cover pasta in chapter two we're ta- we're going to cover boiling water and they kind of go over like a roadmap of what's in all the chapters and then usually the icing on the cake is this is they will tell you uh here a are the types- chapter <laughs> well they'll, they'll, they'll be kind of a summary but usually the the other thing that they do which is annoying is they'll say who should be who is reading this book and what would these people be right and it's always it's always the same thing like it's it's like there are let's say two technical roles, whatever you could be talking about concrete programming or like how to sharpen knives. And there'll be at least like two technical getting your hands dirty kind of roles, one managerial role. And then there'll be, you know, dilettante or like you just, you know, you uh, are snowed in at some Minnesota bed and breakfast. And this was the only book in in the bedroom for two weeks. So now you're (laughs) reading it. And anyway, so those kind of overviews where they just, just like a map. For the All book. Right. I no, I, I actually do the you mentioned O'Reilly, right? So some O'Reilly books, the two that I'm thinking, I actually have the Pivotal Cloud Foundry and I think the OpenShift ones that mm. funny enough, I think uh, a few weeks ago. Was I mean a the, humble, the first one is good, second terrible. Don't that's right. Look. But I did appreciate I think that got them off uh, humble bumble, like a whole bunch, and I was like, Oh, this is good. And because each one of those, like let's call them broadly platforms, because because it sure. can mean a lot to everyone. I actually did appreciate the like the you know what are you about to learn because there's a lot of that that those kind of subjects okay. there's so okay. much context because it kind of gave me a sense of like where like honestly like which chapters and also the level of depth I was gonna you know kind of get into and I because I thought they were like sufficiently murky like you get books on either one of those subjects they can go a lot of different directions so I did appreciate them generally hmm. though. Hmm. You know, the books are very specific, the titles, right? Like, you know, learning JavaScript or whatever, right? Something like that is like, no, that's just like, I mean, you kind of say it all there. So if it, if it isn't very targeted and it's kind of just generally a complicated subject, I like the foreword, if you will, or the introduction. If it's something that's clearly well stated with just reading the title, it should be avoided. Yeah. How about yourself, Matt Ray? What's your position? 
Uh, I like a good prologue. <laughs> oh, boom. You threw another one in the bowl there. A prologue. This is going to turn out um, to be one of those uh, dark green smoothies. You know, you got you just put, you put everything in there. Actually, always uh, comes out who dark threw green. spinach in there? Yes. Yeah. Or beets. <laughs> they do beets here. But anyway. Uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's – it's nice to have that boilerplate, I guess, uh, you know, in the O'Reilly's for, for people who, uh, they don't know, they don't know what they're getting into. Uh, you know, you just kind of skip ahead. Um, but when you get a lot of, a lot of the free PDFs and, and eBooks, um, yeah, Brandon's right. You know, you kind of look in, you're like, mm, I'm not sure the first eight chapters matter. And since I didn't read those, the ninth, I'm not going to get to. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, 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 got too many e-books. I think, I think, I think you two have kind of turned me around. I, I can see the utility in those and they, they might even be useful to kind of look over that. I guess. I mean, it, it doesn't hurt. It's just extra bits. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I, for those who can't tell, my position is I don't like those sections. I just skip over them. Um, but, you know, maybe that explains a lot about my problems. I should, I should read those, <laughs> those instead of not read them. Anyways, what I was getting are to. Are you humble bragging that you've got first world problems? Oh boy. No, uh, <laughs> what I was getting to is I, I, you know, I've, I've, since I've been over here in the Netherlands, I've lost a lot of weight. I don't really, I mean, I, I'm not sure why, but I have, but I'm pretty oh, sure. Oh, wait, They're listening. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, lots of biking, lots of healthy, fresh air and biking. That's all it is. But, uh, um, I think, I think tonight, because I, I cooked a bunch of, it's not ziti technically, but I made a bunch of baked ziti. I think I've gained it all back, essentially, mm, after eating that. That does sound good. So delicious. I mean, I mean, I'm thinking about it right now, even though I feel sick. But you got, you got like, you know, the penne, some spaghetti sauce, ricotta, mixed in with some ground pork and sausage, cheese. I mean, there's, there's no more perfect food except maybe pizza, which is basically the same thing except flat, as far as I can tell. <laughs> Do you think anyone's done a study about why Italian food is so delicious? Or let me let me be more specific. <laughs> American Italian is food. Yeah. Yeah. Cheese, yeah. fried. I mean it's just everything. Bread. Like, like carbs, we got we got a we got a little uh, we got one of them European style pizza places, which is to say if you haven't yet traveled out of uh, the United States, uh when you go get a pizza abroad, you're gonna be shocked. So prepare yourself. Right. Like it's it's a very strange experience. It's like it's like if you have only ever eaten uh, like fish sticks all your life and then you went Oof. to like some really nice, whether it's Chinese or European place where they serve you a whole fish. It's going to be that kind of just like shock. You're just going to out of your <laughs> gourd, man. But uh, they got one of those places down there and, and it's run by a couple of Italian guys. And I remember I was there a couple of times ago. And I said, uh, you know, this menu is in Dutch, so can you recommend something? Um, and, and I said, I want the, like, what, what's like the spiciest pizza you have with like a lot of garlic? And then they stopped me like cold in my tracks. They said, we don't use garlic. And I, I don't, I, I feel to this Whoa. day, I still misheard them. I don't, like, is there a type of Italian food that doesn't have garlic in it? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe, not to my is, is there, is there some sort of like, like, Dutch garlic that they're like, oh, but these, no, but these, you don't put that. But these guys are Italian. That's the thing. They're, right. they're Italian. And, and right, like, right, right. But maybe maybe he thought you were asking for like, you know, the local variant. Oh, you know, if, if you show up and you're yeah. like, hey, yeah. you know, I want some extra Australian okay. cheese in my pizza. And they're like, tasty cheese? And I'm like, yeah, that's my jam. And they're like, that's disgusting. Oh, wait, now, hold on. What's tasty <laughs> cheese? What, is that an Australian <laughs> thing? 
uh, we had this conversation before. Like, oh, I'm sorry. So Australia, Australia does not have. I'll edit chips. this part out so the listeners don't. No, have to no, hear no, it again. no, no, no. And it's not disgusting. It's just, you know, it's not. It's not a pizza appropriate cheese. Ah. So you know, it, it's cheddar. It's that you you know they don't have cheddar in Australia. They have tasty yes. and tasty. You can get it as you know extra bitey and and and, and all that stuff. Is extra but, bitey uh, like sharp? Yes. Ah. <laughs> Huh. So you get your extra bitey, tasty cheese, and you put it on your pizza. Then people are like, "Why you put cheddar cheese on your pizza?" Uh, man, I, I think I think I uh, I made a uh, I made an Australian uh, faux pas the other day to an Australian. I had been I was um, was it Tasty Meats Paul? No, 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 no. It, it was it was <laughs> it was one of the parents at my kid's school. Is uh, interestingly a lot of Australians and one New Zealander who uh, are at our school or the kids' school. Yeah. And uh, I had been up in uh, jolly old England, and they had some, you say Marmite? Is that what it is? They had yep. some Marmite, yep. and uh, I had tried some. And so I was just, I don't know, I just brought up Marmite in conversation as if the Australian would know. And, and they were like, mm, yes, the English Marmite. <laughs> and I had to be like, whoa, sorry, sorry. It's like I was talking about sweet barbecue sauce or something. I didn't mean to offend you. But yeah, I gotta, yep. get, you, get the, you get the Vegemite. Did I get that right? Vegemite, not not the Marmite. Again, don't put that on pizza either. So now, maybe maybe that's my point. Maybe he he was like, no, you don't put that on our pizza. I mean, and and then to wrap up our our, our Australian corner and my customary style. <laughs> I mean, is there really a difference between those two things? As far as I can tell, they're the same. They both have a yellow label. They come in a tiny jar. They taste delicious. Uh, people. Um, people who know uh, say there's a difference. Mm. Uh, I I can't quite bring myself to become the connoisseur of either or both. Do they they have some sort of like uh, like small batch uh, Vegemite thing going on over there, or is it one of those things? It's like it's like ketchup. It's like unless it's Heinz ketchup, it's not ketchup. Or are there other variants of, of Vegemite? That's a good question. Uh, I don't, I've only seen like the yellow label one. I assume it's the same one everywhere. Yeah. I, I think there, I think there's a Vegemite monopoly. Oh, they locked that stuff, stuff up with a secret recipe. Yeah. Call in the regulators. They need to ask the next, <laughs> uh, the next, uh, democratic primary debate thing about that. Get some, never mind this Facebook. Let's solve some Australian monopoly problems in the condiment row. <laughs> this is some serious you shit. On you're you're really going to bring out the, the, the fringe opinions in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, I I thought, you know, not a lot of uh, news going on this week. There was something about the EU has approved uh, the the Red Hat IBM merger. I read somewhere yep. that Brazil had rescinded or something. I don't know what's going on with the with with the Brazil Brazilians, you know, good deed, whatever. But I'm sure yep. I'm sure that will be fine. This kind of stuff always very exciting to watch as the regulation stuff go. And, uh, uh, but I was thinking there's four topics. One of them is just an introductory topic I, I've been discussing with some people recently. I was at, I was at, uh, DevOps Days Amsterdam for a couple of days with one of my coworkers, which meant I had about 12 hours of conversation with one of my coworkers, just, just shooting the, the shit. I figured out, uh, Dutch people's position on drunkenness, uh, and various other things like that, but mostly technical related stuff, uh, and, and, uh, how that goes. Um, uh, and then there's three charts that I've observed over the, the, the last period since 
I didn't know about them. Uh, and I thought we could use them as a fun way of going over what's going on in the tech industry at the moment. But, you know, uh, I have a hard time keeping up with my own things. Like my, uh, I, I found that I have to keep track of my, my son's bike keys now about half the time. Cause he'll just like, Whoa. he'll just like, you know, it was really good for a while and it still is. He'll put them in his backpack, but sometimes he'll put them in his pocket or he might even just, I think he gets this from his mom. He might just like the first place he goes into the house where there's a context switch, he'll just will drop his keys there. Uh, you know, on the counter <laughs> or something, but you know, you know how it goes. Like you've got something in your hands, right? And if you don't like, if you don't like immediately store it once you're done with it, then the next time that you like, you know, chapter 27 of your life begins that day, you just like dump all your stuff. Like you're just like jettisoning fuel for a crash landing and, uh, it just ends up where it is. So you don't want to do that. But, you know, let's say you're, you're dealing with a similar situation in your data center. And you're you're looking around for stuff. You got to dig through these logs. Is there, is there something people might want to look into using? I think there is, Kote. I want to let everyone know that this episode is sponsored by SolarWinds and one of their DevOps tools, Paper Trail. Diagnosing an app error, a sudden spike in event messages, or a customer service ticket, get to the root cause fast using Paper Trail. Powerful cloud-based log management designed for engineers by engineers. With Paper Trail, you can streamline troubleshooting with live tail to see events in real time or search through hours of logs in a few seconds. An event flow visualization lets you spot patterns and trends and pick out anomalies. You can select the trouble spot on the graph and instantly jump to these events. As you work, you can save searches and create alerts without leaving the event viewer. And there's nothing to install or set up, so you can be up and running in minutes. To learn more or try SolarWinds Paper Trail for free for 14 days, go to papertrail.com SDT, that's papertrailapp.com slash SDT, and make troubleshooting fun again. And of course, all of those links are in the show notes, and we always thank SolarWinds for being such a great sponsor. You know, uh, I'm going to get to read the ad next time for people who have forgotten about this, because we'll have a special episode <laughs> later on this week that uh, I will be doing all of it, except for the part where someone else is talking. Uh, but so, we've got that in store for you. Also, uh, you know, I still have one of my uh, my book like on on deep discount. I think it's free actually, the way I have it marked up. But if you go to kote.io/books, you can find a link to all the books that I have. And uh, I think also, if you wanted to just pay for it, you can go to leanpub.com/digitalwtf uh, and uh, I don't know, buy it there. I think they they ran it on special or something. So there's a bunch of people who've been buying it. And uh, I was talking with someone about getting it published like a real boy this this past couple of days as well. We'll see what happens. But so, all right, all right. So here here is my uh, uh, the industry in three charts, starting with one vaguely related item that may consume all of the time instead. Uh, and that is, I've been thinking a lot as as I'm like to do about like what is the the best sort of like. Maybe maybe you two can give me the words, so I'll just keep talking about it. what is the best product strategy. And by product strategy, I mean feature set and uh, pricing and uh, people you sell to. Product strategy uh, for for like a piece of infrastructure software. And what I mean by infrastructure software is basically not really operating systems. I guess it could be, but like you know stuff. The DevOps people, whether you're a dev or an ops or an ops or a dev, whatever that may be, infrastructure software, 
which, uh, you know, someone should start a podcast about that uh, category of software. Uh, but like, what, what's the way of doing things nowadays? And it has occurred to me that, uh, there's a whole bunch of, of, of companies in the past 15 years that I think have figured this out. And basically, I think the, uh, unless, unless you are the exception that, uh, proves and or highlights the rule, the way that you do infrastructure software sales, there's one primary way. And that is, uh, basically it's, it's like the, the funnel thing. It's like a more technical version of, of the, the Red Monk idea of, you know, developers or kings or whatever. And that is yeah. the software has to be very easy to acquire, basically easy to understand. And you have to be able to start using it like within minutes to try something out. So, you know, this is not a big revelation, but something like uh, like a Docker or uh, I don't know, all sorts of like free public ser- cloud services, all of open core software, things like that. And then, well, and then eventually, you know, you build up this mass of people not to make an allusion to like tumors or anything, but you build up this mass of people. And uh, now this is the part where I'm a little more foggy, but you have a very systematic product managed way of saying, here are features that basically uh, we're going to start charging people from for. And like, we just have this bottoms up way of building up the software such that when we go in, we don't really have to explain what we're doing. Now that all sounds obvious, but I think, I think the key Part of the of of making that a profit, maybe not profitable, uh, but an op- I mean, hopefully it's profitable. But the key part of operating that is you actually have like a lot less like uh, field and sales and marketing people than you would normally have and pay for it to kind of yeah. essentially hustle big software up front. And uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I think from what I can tell, that's pretty much the primary way to sell all infrastructure software nowadays. I I think there there's kind of t- two takes on it. You either have something that shows immediate value where you could do say a 14-day free trial um, of mm. a completely closed off, you know, commercial product where somebody's like, you know, day 4 they're like, "Oh, I get it." And then, you know, by the end of the the you know, the first week they're like, "I got to show this to somebody." And then, you know, when they're getting close to the 14 days, they're like wow, this is awesome. You know, we should, we should turn around and buy this Yeah. or, you know, and, and, you know, that's, that doesn't, doesn't have to be open source, obviously. Um, I, or I think you that, have something, oh, go ahead. no, I was just gonna say, or you have the approach of make something, you know, open source or, you know, freely accessible to the point where, you know, people think it's open source and they use it everywhere. Um, because it's just ubiquitous and you know then you just get that that saturation where like well some percentage of people are going to keep using this and figure they need to pay us mm. and I, so yeah. I, I think i think that the phrase you use there that that i was that I was vague on is the immediate value like mm-hmm. and, and and the the point of that is I, I think i think there's a few things there we'll see if i can remember these things as i talk but one of them is uh well one no one wants to pay for anything. So you got no. that. You got they just like just here's core assumption, no one wants to pay for anything. Go with that. And uh so one, no one is gonna pay to see if they like you. Like so you can't it like it has to be free to try it out. It, and yep. and then not only does it have to be a free be a free, I've eaten too much uh ZD. Not only does it have to be free, but like it has to show the value very quickly or you'll go on to like check out something else. So and the third thing is, I think, 
that, uh, and I don't know the quite the right way to phrase this, but at any given time in the whole, um, what do you call it? Not the customer journey. That's some design shit, but the whole, uh, account journey lifespan at any given time in there, someone has to be able to, again, try it for free and like see if it applies to them, which is to say you can't have like one big POC at the front and then expect to sell it to like, you know, tens of thousands of people afterwards. Like they ha- every, yeah. every group you roll it out to every incremental dollar or Euro or whatever, so to speak, that you're trying to like add to the account, they also have to go through this uh, free immediate value sort of experience, which I think comports very well with like the whole open core model of, of doing things. And then also uh, I think the SaaS model of, of selling stuff. But I do think inside of all this conversation is like this nuance that does get messed up a lot. The difference between a free trial and like freemium. Right. And I think, you know, one way, mm-hmm. and it also comes back to like your objectives is one way to, if you will, what a lot of times marketing people call like new contact acquisition to like essentially get people in to just come aware of you is to offer, you know, a freemium. So meaning some service that is offered, you know, with no limit, right. Or, or, or should I say no time limit. Right. And you just go and sell, pick zoom, right. Zoom recently when IPO and they have, I think uh, anyone can have a zoom account. You can do meetings up to 40 minutes and, so there, right, the goal is to just use that as a new contact acquisition. Like you sign up, maybe you use it, maybe you don't, but it just sits there and it's it's sort of like the equivalent of like email marketing. It's a, a tool that you may come back to once a month, once every you know, couple months, and it's just creating awareness because it provides you some utility. If you need to do a quick Zoom meeting and 40 minutes is you know, all you need, right, you would just continue to use that. And they're doing that with the hope, right, that 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 at some point the funnel converts, right? That you need a longer meeting, you need to record it, you need some other thing. I just need a voice to interrupt and be like, you have one minute left on your call. Right. If you'd like to continue and, your call, please enter your credit card number. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Something like that. So so you have that as a strategy where you're really using the freemium as again, I would call it more like a marketing utility. And then you have yeah. what you're talking about, which is the free trial, which is you know, you really you believe that once people engage, that they really should have an intent to buy. And that free trial is usually, you know, a full featured version of the product with the absolute intent that at the end of two weeks or whatever, that you expect someone to buy it. And so like there's right. a distinction there. And I think even for the largest enterprise companies, like I always say this, even for the most complicated software, it is usually worth having a free trial if for no other reason it helps enable your sales engineers, right? To just yes. have like a simple onboarding thing. Even if you're demonstrating something that's only available to maybe, maybe your targeted addressable market's 200 clients worldwide. It's a very specialized piece of software. I would still say like giving the ability to have a free trial, it just makes, you know, it opens up the product internally so people can really understand it. So, right, right, but again, right. very distinct markets, right? And, and very distinct differences. And I think the other thing, the final point on this is like sometimes it's fine to just build a whole separate tool or product that's 100% free that you do nothing else. The only reason you're doing it is to throw it out there, provide some utility and just create brand awareness of your company. Right. Mm. So yeah, uh, and that, that with the hope of then them coming back and buying something different. So I don't know. There's like, they're very, I think they're, it's a nuanced conversation, but I think it's super important so, for companies to understand that. So following up on that and drawing from y'all have more, much more experience in the area of let's just broadly say product, uh, than I do. Uh, uh, and that, it would seem to me, okay, so then if we accept this general, like, uh, let's call it, you know, uh, Matt Ray's immediate 
value freemium thing or whatever. I don't know what the acronyms for that are, but hopefully it spells something like giraffe. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, look at that, I'm cracking myself up here. Uh, but it, it would that would seem to imply that uh, whatever whoever is doing product management, one of their priorities, business value, if you will, is to make sure they build a product that can it's capable of showing immediate value so that becomes oh, yeah. like that's like one of your on your kanban board that's on better fucking do it uh sort of swim lane right that you need to do that and so that becomes like that becomes uh a priority to manage and and so i mean it sounds like that's the case but like you know um interesting in the sense of like you know, we've done a podcast for all these years talking about this really boring ass shit, but it's interesting to us. Like, it does seem like, I mean, it, there must be some kind of conflict between that immediate value and making money at some point. Like, managing that seems like a mysterious art. Like, how do you well, how I, do you divide would, the time up between those, or is it not I mysterious? Think, well, no, I think it's you know, it's usually talked about onboarding, right? Like, that's sort mm. of just the generic phrase, right? So, okay you know, we need to onboard a new user, a new customer into our system, right? And so the question, and then this is where you're asking, is like, okay, what, how much help and how much time do we think it's reasonable to onboard someone into an application? So you have on the consumer side, you know, people would say need to see value within like the first couple minutes, maybe even faster, right? You know, you download that app, you sign up for it. You know, like even that, like, are you going to put registration in front of like, could you do something in the app before registration to like show them some value, right? Like, if you, I know, I know so what you, you have, should do. Let's say that you had some sort of app that was trying to optimize someone's productivity, maybe in the email area. You should require scheduling a phone call with a CEO. I think yeah. That, so there's actually a great, uh, I thought of you today, Kote, or the other day, there's a great interview with that CEO on the Acquired podcast. And he lays out his, you know, he lays that out, right? He just basically says that, they're a super premium service. It's for people that want to pay $30 or more for email per month. And absolutely, they they discriminate or you know they select based on are you willing to go through, engage with them, uh, and go through like a pretty, you know, a pretty, I would say a relatively complicated onboarding process, right? Mm-hmm. And I think they would, I think his point of view is if you're not willing to do it, you're not really a, a legitimate customer. Um, that's going to want to pay this. You're not. You're basically qualifying yourself out. Now we can debate that, right? I, I, I'm not I saying that's true, but it's. Uh, and I think sometimes too, right? People can like believe, you know, they drink their own. Uh, I don't know what's the right. You know, your own dog food, or whatever. Just become, you know, believe their own. Uh, <laughs> just, <laughs> is I just mix oh, seventeen metaphors. Of, uh, we're drinking uh, our own dog food. Yeah. Dog food. Oh. yeah. You know, but uh, but you can obviously, you know, get to the point that, you know, it's just like religion. Like it does yeah. seem very likely that many people could just benefit from a simple uh, email evaluation. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. you know, nonetheless, so I do think but back to this onboarding discussion. So I think it is to your original question. You know, I think most product managers, most everyone would put it up there as, OK, like onboarding. Right. That's sort of step one. And then what are our priorities? And I think it's not it's usually pretty well. In an enterprise company, I find this is often debated at length, right? Because to be great at onboarding will require a lot of time and effort. And there's always this push, this belief internally, oh, people will figure it out. People will figure it out. It's not that hard, right? We'll call them. We'll figure it out. And it's, 
and sometimes it's true, but other times it's just like, no, you know, people, even, even in enterprise software, people are super busy. They do not want to waste time. They just want to try stuff. To your point, they don't want to have to talk to a sales engineer or a sales rep to just try something out and reading the white paper is not enough. So you'll see a lot of tension because they're in an enterprise company, right? There's a, there's usually almost like a, an implicit belief that we could do that, but let's just put that on the back burner mm. and we're going to focus on something else. And then, you know, you never get back to it. Yeah. Well, let, let me let me ask two two uh, examples. One of them that's obvious, uh, and maybe the other one is too. Just to kind of like find the edges of this. One, maybe you two. I'm I'm hoping as always Matt Ray does. But like I never actually really followed NSX, you know the thing VMware bought. But I remember like so many things uh, when VMware bought them. I was like, this is something I have never heard of before. Right. Like I remember I spent like back in the IT management podcast guys thing with John Willis. I had, I tried to have him explain like software defined networking to me for a year and I, I never understood it. Right. And it was one of those things where worked out for him. Yeah. yeah. It, it was, it was, it was one of those topics that even though I don't still know like how it works, so to speak. Cause I barely know like what a seven layer burrito is, let alone all that stuff. But like the reason, the reason I think I could never like understand it is because I assume that's how things worked all along, but indeed they did not. And most of the time it still do not. So anyways, it seems like NSX became very popular, uh, and, and still is as far as I can tell from, from what VMware says, but like that wasn't free and easy, was it? No, but I think the the it wasn't definitely wasn't free and easy, but I think it was one of those problems that was so bad that if you showed up with, you know, a, a light in the darkness, people were like, that's that's what we need. And I see, you know, um, you know, by the time VMware acquired them, uh, it had a good reputation where VMware's, you know, highly, highly skilled you know, sales engineers could have people, you know, qualified in that, you know, VMware knew what the account looked like where they could say, hey, these guys are the sorts who would pay, you know, $80,000 a year for, you know, one one data center. Um, what, you know, and we know that they've got seven of them. Let's, let's you know, spend the time to, to get these guys, you know, excited about this with an on, on-site, you know, POC or something like that. Because, yeah, I mean, that, you couldn't just you know slap some NSX on it and and uh, you know by by lunchtime be showing value, but you knew that there was value there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess that's, that's, that's just a quick aside terrible. there, yeah, yeah. right? That right there, when you have that situation, right, that would be the indication of incredibly strong product market fit. Like if you have something that's mm. complicated, yeah. it's not necessarily that easy, but people are still willing to fight through, figure it out, spend time and effort doing it, and and find then you know like wow. Like you're onto something big, and probably helping people onboard would be really uh, worth your time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then there's another category there that it's sort of like uh, very there. There's high need to solve a problem that's almost impossible to solve. That's that's sort of like, and 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 I guess I mean that's that's useful for me because I feel like that scenario is the way most people think about all technology. <laughs> <laughs> right, <We're, laughs> yeah, well, that'd be the easiest, right? You have right, some right. product that, that's so great, people are willing to put up with your, right, you know, right. Where yeah. it's it's like some kind of wizardry and coolness, and I feel like the the all of the energy that fuels hacker news is based on that uh, misassumption, 
right? It's just like, <laughs> basically, whether or not your technology is good is largely irrelevant, right? Like all, it's basically all sorts of other things. And, and you know, a um, uh, is Coda the right word? But an adjoiner thing to that that's less snarky is that there are often many ways to solve the same problem, all sort of equally good. And it's all this other stuff that uh, often uh, causes the the successor to succeed. You know, as far as like, we spent a lot of time making it really easy to show immediate value. We've, we've, uh, we as the organization funding the development of this have like managed our finances as such that like, we spend very little money to acquire customers and then to make enough money off of them. Like we have marketing to get mind share, so forth and so on. Like there's all of these other things that uh, go into it, which can be uh, consterning. So then the other one, to fit into our matrix here is like, so how does like Kubernetes fit in there? <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> right. That's why I bring it up is like, I think like, cause I, well, I don't know, but I mean, people will like bring up like a, a Kubernetes cluster sort of on their own to just like, see what it would be like, I guess. Right. Like, do they actually go through the full, is there immediate value that that gets shown in some way that it's it's worth pursuing more, or is it is it the uh, the uh, the Brandon position of this is such a big complicated problem that any any light under the bushel is is better than you know a pit of despair or something? Well, the way I've seen it, I think you have to. It's actually Kubernetes is the answer to like another question, right? Mm. It, the thing that I do see. Um, where I had personally witnessed like the fight through because there was so much value was, uh, and then maybe everyone knows this now, but like when, when Docker started to get popular, like when it was sort of making its way around the development communities, people were like, Whoa, I've never done this. I've never con- you know, made a container. And like, you know, I was at a place at the time where someone like kind of figured it out. And then they basically took like, Hey, I put everything in containers and now everybody in the development team can like bring up their own, you know, essentially their own installation of the product we were working on. And, you know, no, you know, it was a detailed set of instruction, but it could run on your laptop. It didn't cost any money. You could do it. And it was a huge savings for everyone to, you know, kind of being some doing their own testing. Right. And so that was the moment of like, wow, we should use these containers. And I think containers in general went through that moment where everyone, you know, in development, like really got to look at it and was like, wow, this is really, really helpful. So then right, right. I mean, once I mean, you got to that point, sort of like the immediate value me, thing. Yeah. And that's yeah. the immediate value. But then it got to like, oh, okay, well, I, I actually want to just, you know, use these containers in production. Right. And I think that's then what opened the door for like, well, how are we going to do it? You know, how do we, when we get lots of containers and lots of different microservices, how are we going to manage it? It's a big problem enter kubernetes or you know at the time docker swarm or other things right so i think that's the but you still got to go back and say you know there was this initial you know value the industry realized in containers at least in the development side and now i think you would kind of say the industry is trying to figure out well how do we realize value all the way through the life cycle of deploying it running it and doing it in a way that's still cost efficient and then i think what you're saying kote what you're pointing out is like well you know, we that's doesn't Kubernetes does not have that today, right? I mean, it's uh, well, it, it, it's it, it's getting there. Go ahead. It, it kind of does. I mean, so so you know, what what Docker brought was that day one, you know, dopamine rush of hey, look, we do what we did. It was <clears throat> relatively easy. I can stand this up quick, you know, and that's that's day one. And then day two was like, well, now what do we do, right? We've got you know five, you know, 
500 applications sitting in containers, how are we going to run them? If you had 500, you know, then you're the sort of company that, or, you know, shop that like Kubernetes makes more sense, but all the small people, you know, they don't need to stand up a Kubernetes. They, they could continue to get that fast return on their investment by going to the public cloud or, you know, yeah. going somewhere where, you know, they like an ECS where they're like, yeah, you've got, you know, seven container app, containerized applications. This is the place to run them. But there is, you know, except for public cloud, there's very little like, oh, you know, we slapped a Kubernetes down and, you know, we saw immediate value for our 150 applications. You don't get that. Mm. Right. Because that's a much bigger investment. It's the sort of investment like the NSX crowd goes for. Right. Which is why, you know, the people who are, you know, selling Kubernetes on prem are the people used to dealing with, you know, longer engagements with, you know, with, uh, you know, with with enterprise customers, you know, your yeah. VMware's, your Red Hats and, and, and so on. All right. Well, well yeah. maybe one last point and then that will lead into at least one of our charts. And, and we'll see if we have time, but but I, I think I think there's a pretty good chart that fits that, and that is that is wait. So so Brandon, what were you saying was the point I was driving towards? Yeah, I think you were talking about like you know the point about if Kubernetes doesn't you know deliver some like immediate value or it's more complicated, right? Like exactly what? Why are people so interested? Ah, uh, in, right, right. okay. We kind okay. of went back and said that Docker drove that interest. Yeah, um, yeah. So so I, the I container. Think- so I think I think I mean from what I can tell, like like all good uh, thought monarchs, I don't actually use any of the technology that that I talk about. So I, let me put that disclaimer out there. Uh, I'm I'm not I'm not on board with being anyone you should listen to or be trustworthy with. I can tell you, animate slides. <laughs> Subscribe to our podcast. That's right. Uh, <laughs> other people much better than I am. Anyways, uh, on this this podcast, but you know I I think I think uh, I think something like showing immediate value just means. At least in the way I was thinking about it, as in uh, you get to stick around, <laughs> right? And so, like, even even if you don't, as as I think other people say this, but as we would definitely say in the pivotal world, even if you don't show immediate day two value, right, that you can run this and whatever, uh, you show that, I guess it would be implied day one value, that developers like it and it's good for them and whatever. Let's just take that as written. So you show immediate value to developers or to some other people, and that makes it persistent. And then, uh, you know, someone has to, uh, work with doing it. And, and I feel like that, that is how something like, uh, like a Kubernetes fits in. And, and I guess, I guess if there were more time, it would be another good, like, uh, sort of Socratic thing, if that's the appropriate thing. Like we, you know, we used NSX as a foil for it, but to think about like, well, so what happened with, uh, with Brandon's favorite mesosphere? And then what happened with this? Like, here are these alternates that sort of like, we're this, we're substitutes or trying to be substitutes. And why didn't they work out? But, I, I think I think what's what's always one of the the unique I think unique confounding things about a Kubernetes is as 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 we were just one of I think one of you was just going over uh, like as far as I can tell the intent of of Kubernetes product management is to make no money on premises and basically <laughs> to be like these this breadcrumb trail of free stuff into this like oven in the public cloud like which is a whole other like new way of monetizing like like open core companies in the past have tried to like monetize a service thing and i guess i guess we talk about the ones uh, that do every every uh every now and then but there's not that many instances that i've come across where like the dominant three clouds i still don't believe this business model cuz it sounds crazy but that you spend a lot of money 
on this like core piece of infrastructure that you then give away for free in order to drive people to your thing to make money at it. I guess I just described HTML, uh, but <laughs> it just like it's it's a it's a weird variant on the uh, the freemium pattern that is. I don't know. I can't think of a I guess I do view it like or x eighty six. I guess, but anyways, I'm mixing yeah. up standards with actual technology. Well, I think that's where it is, right? I mean, that's where you're coming from. Is that it, it just feels like the, and it's more an industry decision. And I think, you know, this is kind of back to like, why are some things popular, but things that are maybe equal, like, you know, music is a good example, like two songs mm. may be equally good, but like one is super popular and one is obscure. And it's like, I think the short answer is like, people don't know like what, why things get popular and why they're not is like a very, you know, it's very hard to un- unpack like what's going on in the human mind. But putting aside that for a second and just say, at the end of the day, right there, it does make it easier. If we all agree, you know, and this is why we see all these different platforms pop up every four or five or ten years. It's like, okay, it's just easier if we all agree that we're going to work on this one, right? And this is the way, because if we all start to do this, it'll be a little bit easier to move things around, and it'll be a little bit easier for all all of us to learn one thing. So in the case of Kubernetes, I think the cloud plot, and and again, I think if you went back in time, I don't think Amazon was a huge fan, but they just sort of got dragged into it. You know, Microsoft's embraced it pretty quickly. Google obviously invented it. So, you know, I think it just, and then the industry has sort of just converged on it and said, okay, Kubernetes, at least at the moment, looks like the platform of like whatever, whatever some time period you want to pick, five or ten years, mm-hmm. and. It's easier if we, if we all start to work on it or, or until we prove it out that it just doesn't work. And then, you know, then there'll be a vacuum and something else will take its place. Um, but I think, you know, it always comes back to like maybe said this way, like there's no necessarily good reason Kubernetes got popular, but something gets popular. Right. It just happens. Yeah. Well, it's it's better than the alternative. Which there wasn't one. Right. <laughs> or if you go back, it was OpenStack, right, to some degree, but you know, people kind of sour well, on it, that. Yeah. I mean, of course, it, but there are like other, pl- I mean, Quote is your wheelhouse, right? P- platforms as a service, right? There's Cloud Foundry, op- OpenShift had its take on it. I mean, there have been other attempts, right, uh, at it. It just, and you know, and some of them are, you know, I don't want to say they're not viable or not, you know, they're certainly, you know, and they're popular in their own area. But like right now, it seems like the focus. Is Kubernetes, and I do think as I've talked to a couple of these partners, trying to like you know sell different Kubernetes, public and private, you know, on-premise kind of stuff, and you know their take. One one person put it this way: just said, you know, everybody agrees, the whole industry agrees, is way too complicated. So everyone is just racing now to figure out all the money is how do you make it simple, right? And that's yeah. why you see uh, a bunch of different cloud projects from all the various cloud. Uh, major cloud vendors trying to make it easier. And then you see all the startups trying to make either one specific part of it easier or the whole thing easier. And that mm. will be where all the money, the quote value is realized, at least in this ecosystem going, I would say for the next five years. So, so well, then, the, then I, I, I got, I got two things and then uh, what, maybe we should save our three charts for next time. I assume, I assume <laughs> y'all, y'all need to, uh, you know, go on your morning run or uh, file some expenses or something. Uh, but, uh, one, let, let me rephrase the uh, the Redmond Grand Theory of Everything. The Redmond Grand Theory of Everything is that developers are the ones who are the kingmakers, right? They, they, which is to say they make the decisions uh, that turn the tide of, uh, of, of IT spending happening. That was a terrible <clears throat> rephrasing, but whatever. But I think, I think the pattern I, – I don't know how far back I would have to go in time, but at least as far as – Maybe I've been paying attention. Not exactly. Let's say since 2005, maybe. 
because uh, I don't know how this would apply to like WebSphere and BEA in the initial round of like Java spending or Microsoft stuff. But it seems like basically developers, uh, they decide what is of immediate value. And, and both of you, I think, have gone over this. They end up using it. And then mm-hmm. they don't pay for anything. Uh, and then essentially ops is always left with the bill. Like they're the ones who then have to come in and have the bill. And I think in addition to being a snarky, you know, funny thing to say, I think structurally the whole culture of IT has grown up around that dynamic where I don't think the VP of ops has much budget, right? To like maybe they buy like some Atlassian and uh, or I guess based on Atlassian's revenues, they buy a lot of Atlassian and uh, maybe some jet brains here. And then maybe they'll like pay for some fancy like scrum coach to come in and tell them what for and do some business market alignment. But like I, I don't think they like pay for most of their stuff. Uh, unless it's legacy stuff, which is, you know, maybe they pay for tuxedo or something. But then I think it's like structurally the ops people end up having all of the budget. And then as a consequence, they have the culture of actually spending money on IT. And so very often, like they're the ones who you go to for money, I guess. But it, it seems yeah, like well, a I, weird relationship or functional, well, but I, think I guess. Some of that's just legacy, right? I mean, I think most of the money in ops for a long period of time was because someone had to buy all the hardware and the data centers oh, and yeah. you know do yeah. all that stuff. So that's why if you go back in time, that's why the budget lives there is like, you know, the development groups they don't want I, to I guess I guess that. you could you could test this theory by saying who spends all the money on public cloud? Is it operations yeah, no, spending I, that or developers well, spending it? Well, I think it's this you know to your to answer your question, I think it's a massive work in progress, right? I just think the mon- the budget has traditionally been in ops but earmarked for hardware, data centers and contracts, right? But now, to your question, it's like, okay, now we need to pay for public cloud hosting, and where does that belong? And I would say, I mean, I've talked to a bunch of different customers, and that that's kind of all over the place, right? Some places right. the budget is moving around. Sometimes there's just like a vague notion of it's in the CIO. Sometimes the development teams themselves get their own budget. Um, so that, I think, is being completely worked out. And that would probably be five uh. years from now or 10 years. Like There'll probably be a new like standard way of doing business, but... I, I think today it's it's everywhere. Even stuff, you know, some of the titles we talk about, you know, no one likes it, like digital transformation VP or something. Like you'll see people with a title like that start to get budget as well. Um, so it's a it's a work in progress. Yeah, yeah. Which which I mean, to do a total like uh, you know batshit retconning of stuff, like it it seems like the closer you are to like moving pixels on the screen to use uh one of my favorite phrases from robert brook like the less able you are to justify costs right like like it seems like you know i don't really ever expect developers or application people to outside of a few sort of key areas like it's hard for them to connect up to like it was worth this much like we did this one line of code and it made this much money now it certainly can be done but I feel like people who know more of the science of this stuff are like the operations people just because mm-hmm. they're used to like going through that. Whereas like if if you now being at a vendor is totally different because like you are the factory if you're the product managers and developers. But like I don't know. I very rarely hear like a discussion of like money and like application developers and like and i mean jesus christ try to try to justify the ROI of design. Good fucking luck with that. Right. <laughs> like that's that's not going to pan out. Well, but you know, you. Go ahead, Matt. I, I was just gonna say it's it's really hard to to 
from the outside influence the application developers to be like, hey, here's here's how you guys should do your you know tech stack, um, because you know they've already made their decisions without you around. You know that's that's why they have developer evangelists is to get towards those people. But the people with the budget are you know like you said it's it's the operations people who are used to like figuring out how to pay for the choices that have been made and which is you know why when you're looking for your champion you're trying to get to someone who's got that you know discretionary budget and hopefully you know hopefully they are if not you know over the app team they're close enough to it where they're like hey we could really influence these guys we'll Give them a demo, invite those people to it, hope they show up from their busy schedules, and yeah, then, yeah. you know, wow them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, Kote, to go back, I think you kind of inadvertently answered part of this question. I think, you know, you said earlier, right? It's like, hey, I, you know, you're not hands on keyboard. You know, you're not using this stuff day to day. But, you know, the inverse of that around the money side is, is like, it's usually the development group, right? I always think of like, if you're actively developing a production application of any kind, I mean, it's all consuming to like, you know, know the programming language, know the architecture, know, I mean, it's just an all consumption. if you're good at it, I think it's an all-consuming kind of, you know, discipline. And you're not, you know, it's really not, you don't, I don't, I don't know if you want to call it the mental space or the time to think about, well, what's the finance implication of all these other things, right? That's normally not <laughs> yeah. even what, yeah. you're not going to be rewarded for it. And probably by nature of like, and it's, and it's not to say that you can't do that. I mean, I've certainly spent time writing code and then getting away from it, but you kind of realize when you get away from it, like, that's what's going to give you a different perspective to think about the money, the positioning, other things, right? So I just think it's like there's just a limited, you know, a human being can only be, can maybe know lots of stuff, but you can only be consumed by a couple things at once. So that's why you, an operations person that isn't necessarily fighting fires day to day, but is looking at how we run things, how do we cost things out, right? That's why that's a natural thing to sit in there or even our jobs, right? Where, you know, I don't use as, as much technology as I consume what it is trying to help people make decisions, right? And then there are other people that behind me that will come in and like, they really do know the tools inside and out, right? Because they use them every single day. And that's what you have to do to stay good with that stuff. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, just a reality of how it all works. But, uh, but also, I, I'm, I think, I think it was a Red Monk article that pointed out like all this database relicensing you know you know anytime you add friction to that developer's choice you're out the door right because you know they've got a dozen you know i think we've got a chart here that has uh 30 database choices (laughs) and you know as soon as you're like well you can use it except in this case they're like next right and and which is why people go to the tried and true even if they're not the most performant or the best they're like i know i'm i can use this without thinking twice yeah, I, I I guess I guess there's a test of like, are you NSX? If you're NSX, there's different rules. But if, if you're not, <laughs> then, uh, then uh, exactly. Well, yeah. yeah. So so uh, I mean to wrap it up, uh, two two inspiring anecdotes here, or one anecdote and, and uh, inspiring is the jokey word. But you know, I I feel like I feel like you know as always as always you know one of my one of my uh, favorite jokes of my own is uh, uh, you know the the Every developer knows the best way to solve any problem is to write software, right? If you're a programmer, everything looks like a programming problem. And I think I think there's that kind of myopicism to be like, oh, everything's so crazy in IT and we don't know how to account for costs. But like as far as I can tell in reading the other literature, like every other cost sort of reckoning thing is all fucked up too. Like if you go read one of my one of my least favorite books, Lean Accounting, it's basically this whole book 
about how like in manufacturing, the accountants are a bunch of idiots and they don't know how to properly like account for things and it doesn't match up with lean. And it's, it's almost like you could, you could take out manufacturing and put software in there and it would be like a really solid, but very tedious to read rant about the software industry, how we, uh, we have like 40 or 50 years of knowing how to do things well. And it's just all the, uh, what is it? The GSNM, the G, whatever. It's all the non-core people who are screwing it up and uh, don't know how to do it. So if someone could read the, do the TLDR on that book, I would appreciate it because I don't really understand what he's saying. Uh, but the other one, so I was, I was at DevOps Days Amsterdam. And I think maybe as a, a little anecdote to wrap this all up, I was talking with someone, you know how it is at a DevOps Days. Am I right, Matt Ray? You're sitting there at the table. People come up to you and like, you gotta, you, there's, there's one, one type of character you size up really quickly. And that <laughs> character, that character is, this guy is coming over here to fuck with me. Right. And, and this <laughs> person, this person is usually between the ages of, let's say, just graduated from college or high school. They're young. They look, they're very, very lanky. Usually the, those, those, uh, those technical types who find themselves at the gym and they're wearing the tight shirt, they are not the ones who are there to screw with you. And it's usually kind of like the very, like, wiry people, uh, who are just kind of in there. And, uh, uh it takes all kinds, Cote. Let, yeah, let's yeah. not, I don't, I don't, I don't want to whatever, but like, I feel like, I don't know. They're not very calm. And, uh, so anyways, I was talking with one of these types and, and just as a tip, here's what you do with these types is, they're gonna they're gonna be searching for some reason to tell you why you're terrible and your company's terrible and you should just like you know mm. get get your little business card sharpen it up and just slit your wrist in front of them and say thank you. It's basically as far as I can tell their mission. Uh, or maybe they just don't know how to talk to people. I don't know. Uh, but what you want to do is figure out what's interesting to them and just have them talk about themselves and then eventually they'll they'll shuffle off. But uh, I was talking with, with this person. And, he w- and they were going over, like, you know, I was looking at these various configuration things and container stuff and whatever. And then, uh, and then I got him, uh, not I got him, but he started talking about like how OpenShift was good and he didn't know why people would use this old version versus this new one because this new one runs on CoreOS and that old one runs on Rel. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, he is saying it's, it's, you know, but I'd never run it. It's too expensive. And like, it's, you know, I wouldn't use that for my uh, Kubernetes thing because it costs a lot of money. And so finally, I was like, well, how much money does it cost? And he was like, oh, I don't know. I'd never looked at the price. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, Jesus Christ, this is this is this is what's going on here. That's what's happening. Yeah. Well, speaking of what's happening, you got any uh, listener feedback for us, Brandon? You know, we do. Um, One, we want to say uh, I think Troy from San Mateo uh, emailing in the other week. We sent him some stickers, but. Really, the big news of this week is we have to uh, really thank Charles from uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. He took up the challenge to actually uh, make us some music. So he's going to send he sent in some uh, software-defined talk theme music. I don't know. I don't know where we are on our updating our production value, but eventually we're going to get that music in here. Mm-hmm. Either maybe maybe this episode, maybe at the end, but we'll find a way to. Maybe, maybe we should. Beginning. We should. Uh, do you think we could duck it underneath the ad read? Is that in the contracts? I, I mean. I, th- I think the question is, can we do it? But, uh, <laughs> but a hundred percent. When we figure out how to uh, to actually import audio into our uh, Hindenburg uh, audio uh, production yeah. equipment here, we'll do it. But it's great. No, I actually really appreciate it. I thought, you know, 
it's great that he took some time to actually do it. I think it's fun. It's good music. So, yeah. uh, and of course, uh, because everything belongs on GitHub, you can actually go to the link and he's got it all up there and I actually learned a lot about, uh, audio file types he's got a whole bunch of new audio file types i did not understand i guess they're used by djs and it makes it really easy to like import them and use it i was like wow this is really cool so if you uh, want to go listen to it you know or uh, check it out go out to uh the github site and um and uh, play around with it do you think do you think and there's just, someone named uh, dj pull request <laughs> there must be there simply must look be. this up uh, and then well, while you're looking it up, I'll just I'll quickly say we got a lot of people uh, hiring right now. So I don't know if you're looking for a job, you should uh, join the software defined talk Slack. And uh, this week, I know uh, Go Cardless is hiring. Uh, we got there's two jobs at uh, Netflix. There's a delivery platform engineer and a resilient engineering. People always like to talk about Netflix. There's this company I don't know. I'm, have you ever heard of it? It's called Chef. Evidently, uh, they're hiring uh, a community manager. Is that right, Matt? They are. Uh, you, you can't replace Nathan Harvey, but uh, you can have his job title. <laughs> <laughs> so it's out there. Maybe hit Matt up. He can tell you what it is. I, 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 uh, I caught up with Nathan Harvey last week. That guy's a delight. He's he a is. nice guy. He is. Yeah. He's just, yeah. He's, the final, he's, just, he's just here to bring cheer. I think that's his thing. Hugging. Is he still, is he, he's the hugger, right? Still giving the hugs and stuff? You, you know it. Yeah. And then the final one, uh, there's a platform operations engineer at aspect but listen i don't know all the details of all these jobs but if you join the software defined talk slack by going to softwaredefinedtalk.com join the slack and you went into the jobs channel you can actually find all the people that posted this and they can tell you if they're good jobs or bad jobs where 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 how you should apply how you should get it matt ray would say no typos on the resume i think matt ray has a whole talk you should find that somewhere (laughs) i think it's a lightning talk i did have a whole talk (laughs) so i have opinions all right, I'm gonna we'll dig that out and we'll put that in the jobs channel. So if you apply for the community manager job at Chef, quick tip, probably watch that. Probably is, uh, and, watch. And, and also, if you want to do any type of sales engineering anywhere in the world, Pivotal will hire you. Probably, <laughs> I mean, if you know what you're doing and you don't have misspellings on your resume. But uh, if you go to pivotal.io/careers, always lots of jobs, and especially in Europe, we could always do with some uh, some more sales engineers. We call them uh, platform architects. So you got that going for you. You're a PA, not an SE. There you have it. Well, that's all the feedback. Great feedback from everyone. Well, also, uh, you should join us in our Slack. It's over at uh, softwaredefinedtalk.com slash Slack. Thanks to NoSSHJJ. Uh, and I saw he ran into uh, our friend Tasty Meat Pauls recently over there in China. What was going over on there in China, Matt Ray? Is there some kind of conference? CNCF uh, had their uh, yeah yeah big, oh, okay uh, okay yeah because you had an Alex Williams over there you had Tasty Meets Paul JJ had everybody yeah. everybody was over there yep looks like they're having a good time looked tasty uh, and then we got you know we're in the Twitter and the Instagram just go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash one eight five that's this episode number and you can see a link to buy my book all the uh, jobs we mentioned uh, conferences all sorts of things like that do you have some new conferences you're going to Matt Ray. I do, or yeah, I haven't decided which one I'm going to yet. <laughs> um, I, I've got conflicts in the calendar, but I'll be at one of them at least. Um, Cloud well Expo said. Asia, yeah, Cloud Expo Asia is uh-huh. uh, October 9th and 10th in Singapore. Uh, there are definitely going to be some chef people there, probably me, uh, but also DevOps Day Sydney. Uh, October tenth and eleventh. Mm. Um, here, here in uh, in my uh, my current hometown. So, 
um, I'll be at one of them, at least. Maybe both. That's right. Well, at least <laughs> we'll you, see did, how the you, goes. You, you did. You didn't totally, uh, you know, max it out by saying or not. So yeah, there, it's an, no, 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 no. And they're, I, they're, I, uh, I accepted a talk at DevOps Days Cape Town in September, and I'm thinking wow. I should try to I should try to meet up with some other people on there. So if you are you are in Cape Town, and uh, you know, not just not just any Randy Looky Lou, but like something that would be relevant and interesting to talk. Basically, if you're cool. That's all I'm saying, but uh, it's it's always I I don't I don't know that many people down there in this in this area, so it'd be fun to uh, talk about the exciting world of infrastructure software. Uh, well, uh, yeah, and there's also a bunch of Spring One tours to go to. If you go to springonetour.io, you can check that out. And um, I'm also going to be at CF Summit uh, in in Den Haag or Hague, the Hague. Uh, I forget when that is, but I'll be around there as well. So. We'll save our three charts for next time, which is, uh, is it six shells or four that they have in Demolition Man or Derby Guy? Which one is it with the Sylvester Stallone? Judge Dredd. Is that right? Sounds Maybe right. Both. Yeah. Future uh, Soldier? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. But isn't Dolph Judge, Judge Dredd is like mean, and I feel, I feel like that movie was funny. So is that a problem there? I'm gonna do mean some research. Can be funny. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> You're gonna go watch. Slow down, uh, Matt. <laughs> no. I I I mean, like you know, your Deadpool's and the like. Oh yeah, the Three Stooges classics. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, this week, Brandon, what do you have to recommend? Uh, this one, I'm, I'm going hyper local here in Austin. You know, I always like to see a, a little digital transformation that helps me in my life. So here, and and I'd love to hear. <laughs> how this works in the rest of the world. But uh, here in Austin, we now have uh, three bins for various garbage. We have the uh, the traditional trash, we have the recycling, and then we have uh, the compost. But uh, each bin has, has its own schedule for when it gets picked up. They're the same days, but sometimes we're recycling, sometimes it isn't. And I can honestly never remember it. So I want to thank the city of Austin. They will actually just send me uh, a text message the night before of like which day uh, is my trash pickup. And more importantly, which of these three bins need to go out? So nice. I like it because it's, it's just, it's the perfect kind of text message. Cause you know, yes, you can add it to the calendar, but if then there's all these use, uh, special cases of like holidays and, uh, you know, yeah. and, like make things get pushed out. So I just thank them. It's like, this is great. Just, just Whoa. text me the night before. And, uh, that's my reminder. That to, is, and, that is some digital transformation right I am, there. I'm all in. I just, I think it's great. Great right. for the city of Austin. And, uh, I can't tell you just how freeing it is to be like, just tell me what to do. Uh, now I don't think any of us truly understand, at least in my household, uh, composting. I mean, we've, we just know you really pizza boxes. Cause that's like the one thing they put on top of it, put pizza boxes in here. Other than that, I feel mm. like we're not doing a good job composting, um, but you know we'll work on that. But at least we know when it gets picked up. So check that out. It's Toyo working for you. Yeah, I feel like that. <laughs> that is that's a great case study. Well, needing to happen, right? Like it, because uh, basically you got two strategic things a city would be after. One, like just being a good boy and girl and whatnot, right? Like you gotta you gotta do the composting. But two. I bet there are actually uh, interesting cost savings involved with like telling people how to properly do their trash. Oh yeah, and and it's probably a literal analog to digital thing, right? A real digital transformation where this kind of stuff used to be analog, or, or, or at least PDF, 
right? Like I remember you could get the schedule. The, the city of Austin is always very shady about telling you the schedule for stuff. I think it's so that people wouldn't go around <laughs> and do bulk pickup. It was always very difficult to find stuff. And I remember they had a big, like maybe 10 years ago, a big, they were in that wave of doing website design where it was like, it was the, um, what was the guy? Jacob Nielsen, the first web designer guy. And they had that theory of like a website should be like, uh, like an article kind of sort of, I don't know. I'm not making any sense, but the, the, the what I remember last time I looked at it, the city of Austin website has that. If you if you can recognize this era of styles, it's very much so that style, which was kind of nice. But like you're saying, Brandon, you're just like, just tell me when I need to put the the rotten pizza boxes out. That's all I want to know. Well, and that sort of stuff makes money because it's a it's working at such a scale. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, sending text messages, brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah. I bet. And what do you think? It probably cost them like two, three million dollars. Maybe more like 10, <laughs> but like, it can't be that much. It's pretty small. I, things. I can't be bothered to check the price. Man, that's the kind of thing that over on Hacker News would drive people crazy. They would be like, in a weekend, I could have set this up. Yep. It's too bad. It's How about yourself? Dirt, it's probably dirt cheap. Yeah. So. Hey, it's trash after all. How about yourself, Matt Ray? What do you have to recommend? Uh, I watched a really good talk. Uh, I don't think it's a new talk. I think it was from like 2015 uh, called uh, I'll Let Myself In, uh, The Tactics of Physical Pen Testers. Pretty much this guy's uh, got a little company and their job is to break into places, um, you know, the the pen testers. And uh, now when, once you see it, you're like, you start noticing things everywhere. He, he shows you how... Uh, like motion sensors work, doorknobs work, you know, locks. It's like, it's not even lock picking. It's just dumb stuff uh, that you get into buildings really fast. I'm not doing that, obviously, but, you know, you just start to see it everywhere. Uh, so good, really good talk, very uh, entertaining and, and, and fast. So uh, check it out. You know, my, uh, you, you two may remember my friend Mason in high school, he had what I thought was the coolest job ever because his dad was like a, you know, an old hot rod car guy. So he hung out with all these people and Mason had an apprenticeship with a locksmith. And so he learned how to like pick locks and Jimmy cars. And, uh, so he consequently, he like carried a bunch of that stuff in his trunk. And, uh, you know, uh, I remember one time, I think, you know, they were off doing whatever high school kids do on railroad tracks and, uh, uh, and he was saying, you know, the cops are going, you know, came by and like went through his trunk and they're like, oh, why do you have this crowbar and this, this thing? And, and like, <laughs> this wasn't like a, an immediate fix for it, but it was a very legitimate fix of like, well, I work for a locksmith. <laughs> and it was just like, perfect. Love that. Yes. But yeah. Yeah. Good old lock picks. That, that, I remember that, man, that seems like such a nice skill. But nowadays, I realized, like, I was looking at the doors we have here, and they have, it's like those French doors with the little pokey holes on the side so yep. that you can't, like, pull the hinges out and just open them. And I was thinking, it's like, in the video. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was thinking, like, I mean, I get it. That way you can't open the door, but, like, if I'm going to break into your place, it's going to be a lot of noise to, like, beat the hinge pins out. So that's loud. And I'm a criminal, so I'm going to break the glass anyways. So who cares? But like, I don't know. It seems like a lot of uh, theater that probably is useful for those high school right. kids. Well, my recommendation. So I, as mentioned, I was uh, when I wasn't talking with uh, um, people who don't know how to look at a Red Hat price sheet. Uh, I was I was uh, at 
DevOps Days Amsterdam, and I gave a little five-minute talk there. I gave a new version of my How to Survive and Thrive in a Big Company, which was fun. And as a speaker gift, they gave me uh, – if you're in the Netherlands, you'll know these. Uh, but they, they gave me a secure – I don't know how to pronounce it – Secured, Secure ID wallet. And it's this little wallet uh, that's about the size of a credit card, and it has this button, and it pops up your cards from it, and it has a nice leather uh, sort of outer cover on it. And it's one of those wallets that is like uh, anti-RFID or something, which I always thought was if you're a tinfoil hat person. But now that I'm over in uh, out of the U.S. where there's contactless paying, it's, also, it's so people can't, like, you know, frittage up against you in, uh, in the tube and, you know, take five pounds or euro out of your, your card. But uh, it's a nice little wallet. It's great that I have it because this is one of those those items that um, that Kim thinks is ridiculous, so I would never buy. But one just literally fell into my hands as I was walking off the stage. So now I have it. And uh, I have wow. to say, I like it. I've taken the case off of my phone. And I don't know if you've handled your phone naked, as it were, recently. But boy, what a sensuous, nice experience. I feel like I might break it, but I'm also due for a new phone. So... Uh, it's nice to have just a caseless phone. Well, with that, as always, thanks for listening. And this has been Software Defined Talk uh, that you've been listening to in case you're in someone's house or you're sort of trapped somewhere and you don't know what's going on. <laughs> Everything's fine. Just just wait. Make sure you have a good water supply. Uh, and, uh, you know, just try to be a locksmith apprentice next time. But if you want to get the show notes for This Is Mentioned, you go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash 185. All sorts of links there. We got all sorts of other episodes. If you want to leave us a, uh, a review, a star rating in your iTunes, in your Overcast, whatever it is you're doing, you should uh, get into that. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. Bye.